we'll begin with a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you again for time and for life in Christ and for the privilege of thinking about our heritage. We pray that uh, in our world that is seeing so much that is momentous, that you'll grant us as we look at the past to see its value and relevance for our day. May our time together be both intellectually helpful and spiritually challenging, and may you in all that we think and say be glorified for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, tonight uh, we're looking at uh, Martin Luther. We, we began last week with Luther, uh, looking at his early life, his uh, background in Germany, something of the larger uh, context of the German Reformation, and the way that God led him to conversion. Um, his conversion takes place probably 1514, uh, the winter of 1514. By that point, he is a PhD in biblical theology. You need to recognize that that sort of attainment in that world is quite rare, uh, that uh, most of the men who would have been teaching in universities would have had a master's degree. For him to have a, a what we call a tertiary degree or a terminal degree beyond that is quite, uh, quite amazing. And uh, Luther has a, a number of interesting sides to him. I did show you the seven-headed Luther, the Siebenkopf uh, Luther, that was the cartoon or caricature by the Roman church. And there are different ways of approaching Luther's uh, personality and so on. And he's, um, he's a bit of a rambunctious individual in a number of ways. And what is often forgotten in some of the kind of caricature of Luther is the recognition that he was a, really a, a preeminent biblical theologian. Uh, so when he becomes teaching in 1512 at a relatively young university, the University of Wittenberg, um, he is probably one of very few men in Germany who would have had a doctoral degree. And uh, uh, he is at the same time an Augustinian monk uh, trying to find peace with God, uh, going through all of the uh, rigmarole um, of the late medieval church where it was a mixture of faith and works and grace. And in many respects, things had been added to the simplicity of how one finds salvation uh, that you find in the New Testament. And um, Luther, is, uh, Luther does not, he is not aware that there are others in Europe who are wrestling with similar issues. Um, we'll see Huldreich Zwingli in Switzerland tonight. At the very same time that Luther is trying to find a righteousness and peace with God, Holdreich Zwingli is wrestling at the same time. Nor does Luther know that in the, the court of the king of France, uh, a man named Jacques Lefebvre d'Etape, we'll look at him next week when we begin to look at the French Reformation, in 1512 he is already preaching justification by faith alone. And uh, Luther will see himself really as the pioneer but the reality is that God is working in a variety of different countries and all of these various streams of Reformation in France and Germany and Switzerland will eventually flow together in what we call the Reformation. And uh, this uh, picture here illustrates that. This is called the candlestick. There's numerous uh, representations of it. 
And um, here you have the candlestick with uh, its lit, and a variety of figures, none of whom would have all been in the same room at the same time. This is Luther, uh, Philip Melanchthon. Uh, this is probably Calvin here. Uh, this is probably this might be John Wycliffe, who lived. 200 years earlier, so there's no way these men are all uh, together in the same room. But what's significant is you've got a variety of people down here trying to blow the candle out. And we can identify them. This is a uh, Franciscan monk here, or a cardinal maybe. This guy's a monk. This is the Pope. Uh, we know that by his papal tiara, and he's carrying a cross. Uh, who knows what that is? <laughs> um, it might be in the book of Revelation, it talks about these beasts coming up from the pit. And it might be a representation of that. But you can see them, they're all, you see the breath, they're all trying to blow it, blow out the candle. But they can't. And what this represents very, very, I think very powerfully, is what the Reformation, the Reformation, uh, despite different. Uh, national context and different national regions, there was a unity. These men recognized, uh, eventually they recognized that they were about the same thing. That is to reform the church. And in Western Europe, uh, there, from that, this point on, there really are two major blocks of Christianity. There is the Roman church, which we could describe as the Roman Catholic church, and then there are the Reformed, and I'm going to use the word Catholic. Uh, we sometimes hear the word Protestant. Um, and uh, the, the importance of the word Catholic, I, I, I really like the word Catholic. It speaks of the universal church. Um, if, you're, if you're not in the Catholic church, you're not saved. Now, you have to be careful <laughs> how you say that. Uh, we're not talking about the Roman Catholic Church, per se. We're talking about if you don't belong to the body of Christ, you're not a Christian. That's basically it. And it would be, it would be Calvin who would say, if you do not have the church for your mother, you don't have God for your father. And that be, that's a very... These men do not see themselves as rebels against the Roman Church as much as they see themselves going back to the early church, reforming the church in touch with that long history that goes back to the apostles. And that's, I think, very important for us to, to realize. Um, so what we want to do tonight, uh, this is, uh, by the way, this is, uh, this is an older classic, Life of Luther. <coughs> it's a really good life, published in the 1950s by Roland Baden, a very famous historian at the time. Here I Stand, which is going to be a central part of what we want to look at this evening. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about the chronology of Luther's break with Rome. And this is where we're going to look at a variety of, of debates, the Heidelberg Disputation, the Augsburg Diet. Uh, that's diet means parliament. It's got nothing to do with losing weight. Uh, the Leipzig, that should be Leipzig, not Leipzig. Leipzig Disputation. And then we'll have a little kind of jaunt off to the side, and uh, Luther's spirituality of the word. When Luther begins the Reformation, so to speak, in 1517, with the nailing of the 95 Theses to the church door at Wittenberg, um, he has no idea where he, he's going to end up. He does not intend to become a rebel against the Roman church. 
And there are certain areas he doesn't have yet solidified in his mind. He doesn't have sola scriptura in his mind, which we'll explain. Uh, that comes later. Um, so we want to talk a little bit about that. Then we want to talk about the diet of worms. Uh, notice, please note, it's an A sound, not an O sound. The diet of worms, not the diet of worms. With, uh, you know, it gives you, oh, what are these people eating? Uh, again, diet is parliament. And then, uh, very briefly, Luther at the Wartburg. Um, he spends a year there. He's kidnapped. Actually kidnapped by the man who runs the country where he is, Saxony. The man fears for his life. And we'll explain that. And then we're going to look at two events uh, that are very important events in Luther's life. His marriage to Katharina von Bora. Um, Luther rediscovers Christian marriage. And we want to talk a little bit about that. And then the area of failure in Luther's life, the Colloquy of Marburg, which is a sad, very sad event, and I think has much to teach us today about when, what, what, how should Christians deal with one another when they fundamentally disagree on some basic issues? Um, as I said, if you want to get into, there's tons of biographies of Luther. A lot of them came out in 2017. This one came out in the 1950s. It really is very, very good. It's an old standard, and it's uh, a very trustworthy life of Luther. Um, we've come to look at Luther in different ways since then, but it's still a great book uh, to get into Luther's life. So this is a chronology. I'm really going over a little bit of what I've just done there. We're, we're really going to go, the first part of tonight is from 1517, October the 31st, when Luther nails the 95 Theses to the church door at Wittenberg. Uh, we looked at this last week. The 95 Theses are an invitation to an academic debate in Latin about indulgences. And uh, Luther is not intending to attack the papacy, although he does have a couple of maybe little snide remarks. You know, if the Pope's really a Christian, why doesn't he, and he's got the power to let everybody out of purgatory, why doesn't he do that? Right? Yeah. Uh, if you can do good, I mean, John Wesley said, do as much good as you can to as many as you can. So if you can do good to people, uh, but wouldn't that be a, a good deed? You would think so. Um, but Luther has no idea. It's supposed to be just a debate among theologians. Within weeks, the 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 document is all over Germany. It's been translated into German. He wrote it in Latin. And uh, there is a growing revolution, is the way we, we could put it, which is demonstrable at the Heidelberg Disputation, which we'll talk about. And then these other three events, two events, the Augsburg Diet. This is where the, the Roman Catholic Church now will bring out their heavy guns. And they will dispatch one of the great cardinals of the day, Thomas de Villo, Thomas of Villo, or no, he's known as Cardinal Cayetan. He's going to deal with Luther. And in three days, he's going to basically knock the stuffing out of him and uh, basically shut him up. Uh, it doesn't work that way. And then they bring out at the Leipzig Disputation the most famous German theologian of the day, Johann Eck. Uh, nobody's heard of Eck today. It's very interesting how fleeting uh, fame can be. Eck was the man of the day. And uh, we'll see how that plays a very important role in Luther's teaching. 
And then finally, when all of these things fail to stop Luther, the uh, papacy in the Vatican issues a bulla. It's called, in English, we'd call it a bull. And a bulla, it's got nothing to do with bulls. It's a document. It's an official document. And um, during the papacy or the, the time that uh, John Paul II and then Benedict were popes, they issued a number of these. And uh, actually, some of the stuff was very, very good. John Paul II had a very keen understanding of issues of um, uh, human rights. Uh, Benedict Sixteenth, we would disagree with him on a number of things, but his grasp of certain issues was very, very keen. Uh, the present pope, uh, I, if I was a Catholic, Roman Catholic, I'd be very upset about the present pope, uh, but that's, that's another story. Um, <laughs> And all the, all the bulls, these official documents, are known by the first two Latin words. Exerge Domini. Rise up, O Lord. And then it goes on. A wild boar, B-O-A-R, has appeared in your vineyard in Germany. It's Luther. A deal with him. And uh, it's, ex it's an excommunication. And uh, Luther is formally excommunicated as a result of it. Um, now, I'm quite certain if you got a note from the Vatican, which you're not going to get, but uh, that, that said you were excommunicated. I'm, I, I'm not sure you'd be losing much sleep over it. Uh, it is a big thing in that day. It means that you're damned. Your whole family's damned. Um, anybody who gives you shelter is damned, shows you any kindness is damned. Go, that is, you're going to hell. You're not going to purgatory. And anybody who meets you on the street and kills you is doing God a favor. Yeah. So it's, it's pretty severe. And then we have the Diet of Worms, which is a very, very important event. Um, and uh, the Diet of Worms, the parliament started meeting in January, uh, but Luther wasn't on the agenda until April. And uh, uh, he will be there three days, and especially the th second day, April the 17th is the day we want to think about. So, if you remember last day we had, um, uh, we looked at this cartoon, this dream. It's quite, it's quite a, you know, quite a detailed cartoon. You can see all the stuff going on, all the stuff written. Um, and supposedly this was a dream on the night of uh, October the 31st. Uh, Frederick the Wise, who was the ruler of Saxony, there he is, had a dream in which he saw Martin Luther writing the 95 Theses on the church door of Wittenberg. I mean, there's no way he could have known that, right? The 95 Theses hadn't been posted yet. So the first documentary evidence of this dream is about 50 years later. So it's a story. But the story is important. And uh, Luther is writing it with a quill pen. Uh, this, is your, this is the way you would write things in those days. Uh, this doesn't change until probably the 18th century, I would think. People use quill pens, usually from ducks or geese, and you would take the, the, the quill, uh, the feather, and you'd sharpen the end, right? You'd sharpen to a point, and then slit it. Um, I'm sure many of you grew up with pens, like I did in England, where you had the inkwell, and you learned how to write. It was actually a fabulous practice, because you learned how to write a good cursive hand, and, uh, and you have to be very careful because if we took too much ink on that, it, right, blob of ink. 
uh, etc. And uh, that's the way he would have uh, they would have been using these these pens. So he's he's writing uh, the 95 theses on the church door right there, and this pen is some pen because uh, he's in Wittenberg. But here's the Pope in Rome. There's Rome, and there's the there's the actual Pope and this is a representation of the Pope because he's Leo the Tenth. It's a lion, and it's got a, the pen's going right through the lion's head, knocking off the papal tiara. So if we go back, right here's the papal tiara, the three crowns, and uh, it identified the Pope. Uh, that that's one of the ways we can identify the Pope normally in portraits of this period. He's the man with the three crowns on his head. And um, it's knocking off the papal tiara. In other words, the 95 Theses is going to wound the Roman Catholic Church significantly. And as I said, Luther doesn't know that at all when he starts. And, but also significant, and this will come in today, uh, tonight, um, is that where did, the, where did that cruel pen come from? Well, you've got these guys down here burning a goose. But before they burn the goose, they pull out feathers. And you have to remember, in Czech, old Bohemian, uh, the, word for, uh, the word for goose is hus. Hus. So the idea is, the pen that Luther is writing with comes from hus. But hus was condemned as a heretic. Ah, oh, Okay. And there's all, all kinds of other stuff going on here, which we needn't uh, get uh, bogged down on. So, the Heidelberg Disputation. Um, anybody here ever been to Heidelberg? Yeah, it's gorgeous. It's an absolutely gorgeous medieval city on the Rhine. Um, if any of you have the chance, my wife and I have done this twice. We've done a, a trip down the Rhine. We did one. We started in Amsterdam and went down to, got off at Nuremberg. Uh, where they had the famous trials after World War II, and then took a train to Vienna because our daughter lives in Vienna. And the second time we had done a tour of, uh, I was involved in leading a, a Reformation tour of, of Switzerland and Germany and Holland. And we started in Geneva. And we did, we did the Matterhorn, you know, go to the Alps. And then we did Zurich and then went to Basel. And you pick up the Rhine going, it's flowing down from the Alps, down into the German plain. And that, it was that time we stopped at Heidelberg. And it's absolutely gorgeous. Really, a beautiful, very beautiful medieval town. And so Luther was invited when, when he issues the 95 Theses, and it's all over Germany. The papacy contacts the Augustinians. Luther is an Augustinian. And says, shut the guy up. Okay. So Luther gets invited to Heidelberg. Heidelberg's on the other side of Germany. It's about 400-mile walk. Luther would have walked there. And um, it was a gathering of the Augustinians. And this is a contemporary thing of Luther. This is a, this statue, if I recall correctly, I took this, I think, in the house of Philip Melanchthon, uh, not far from Heidelberg. Now, this man is Martinus Bucerus, Martin Bucer, German monk, he was there that weekend, and he's the one who tells us what happened that weekend. Luther was asked to present his views. 400 Augustinian monks 
the entire Augustinian order in Germany. And this is his um, statement. Although our chief men contradicted him with all their might, their wiles were not able to make him move one inch from his propositions. His sweetness in answering is remarkable. His patience in listening is incomparable. His answers so brief, so wise, and drawn from the Holy Scriptures easily made all his hearers his admirers. On the next day, I had a familiar and friendly conference with the man alone and a supper rich with doctrine rather than dainties. He agrees with Erasmus. Erasmus was a great Dutch scholar at the time. He agrees with Erasmus in all things, but with this difference in his favor, what Erasmus only insinuates, he teaches openly and freely. He has brought it about that at Wittenberg, the ordinary textbooks have all been abolished. While Jerome, Augustine, and Paul, Jerome and Augustine are early Christian authors, and Paul are public to talk. So when we think about the Reformation, we think about it as a recovery of biblical doctrine, which it is. But it is also a period of revival. When the Spirit of God comes in power in a community, he is the Spirit of truth. And so he comes, the Reformation, yes, it splits the church, but it is a movement of God. The Spirit of God is being poured out in many ways in the Reformation period. And usually when we think of revivals, we think of massive numbers of conversions, which we're going to see in a second. Um, and we don't think of reform of doctrine. The Reformation is reforming doctrine, but it is also revival. In that weekend, out of 400 Augustinians, around 390 of them were converted. The entire order went over to Luther. There were half a dozen older men, uh, and uh, I'm now in my 60s. One of the dangers of getting old, you get stuck in your ways. And I, I'm complaining about this and grumpy about that. And sometimes I have to check myself, you know, okay, get a grip on this. Um, so, and uh, these older men just, no, nah, it's not for us. We just can't change our ways. In other words, what this is, it, can you imagine the entire order in one weekend is converted? So the, the order had gathered together to shut Luther up. Instead, the whole order becomes committed to the Reformation. Well, that didn't work. Um, Bucer is a very important figure. Um, he will be the first of the reformers to marry. He's a monk. He gets married in 1521. But it's always the marriage of Luther that everybody remembers. And uh, he'll be the critical reformer in Strasbourg. Anybody here to be in Strasbourg? Yeah, it's, it's another gorgeous city. They've got a fabulous cathedral. If you remember the cathedral in Strasbourg, right in the heart of the city, that's where Butzer preached. And when John Calvin has to end up, he ends up in Strasbourg, it'll be Butzer who will mentor Calvin on a number of areas. Calvin had written a textbook on theology, but he had nothing about angels. And Butcher will tell him, you've got to have something in there about angels, right? Uh, Calvin didn't have anything about predestination. Can you imagine it? Everybody thinks Calvin's the, the theologian of predestination, and, and he adds something. And most importantly, Butcher says to Calvin, I see you're not married. You need a wife. <laughs> Calvin tells him, tells him he, Calvin's like in his, at this point, he was 20, 28 or 29, 
Yeah, twenty. He's in his late twenties. Basically, I, I've, never, I've not even thought about getting married. Well, you got to get married. If you're going to be a reformer, you got to get married. <laughs> and we'll talk about that. It's actually kind of a fun part of Calvin's life. Uh, Butzer trying to get him married. Uh, and then in his latter years, Butzer comes to Cambridge in England. And I'm not going to spend time on Butzer per se, but Butzer will be critical in the Reformation in England, helps draft the Book of Common Prayer. So those of us who are Baptists, our forebears, English Baptists, they all were raised on the Book of Common Prayer. Butzer was involved in that. He would die in 1551. Uh, two years after his death, he, as his body is dug up. He's buried in Great St. Mary, right in the heart of Cambridge. And uh, Mary, Queen of, uh, not Queen of Scots, but Bloody Mary becomes Queen of England. She's a Roman Catholic. She digs his body up and burns it outside. It's right on one of the main streets of Cambridge now, right opposite the Convocation Hall where people graduate, right opposite King's College, King's College Choir, right? Christmas carols, Queen's College. And she burns his body there, but she should have got rid of the ashes because that night his friends come, gather up all the ashes. So when she's dead in 1557, they go back into the church and bury him in the church. And I didn't know, I didn't know he was buried in that church. I was there about four years ago before COVID. And um, <clears throat> I was with a student and he, he said, look what I found. I found Butzer's grave. It's right by the, the high altar. Anyway, Butzer's a very, very important figure. Um, even though he's not, he normally doesn't figure in studies of the Reformation. So, uh, the Heidelberg Disputation failed. Okay, now the Roman Catholic Church is going to bring out the big guns. And so, in 1518, uh, we have the, what's called the Augsburg Diet, Augsburg Parliament. And the Roman Catholic Church bring a man named Thomas de Vio. There he is up there. The painting here gives him a better look. <laughs> uh, the poor guy up there. Uh, he's a cardinal. We can tell that, by the way, in the painting. He's wearing red. And our cardinals are that, that enclave of circle of men who are really the intimate confidants of the Pope. They spend most of their time in Rome in this period of time. They're very powerful figures. And normally, um, the next Pope is drawn from one of the cardinals. So this man is a really powerful figure. Thomas de Vio, he's Italian. So he's, he's a, he's, he is the papal legate or representative in Germany. He's a very well-known debater. And uh, on the way there, Luther's confessor, Johann Staupitz, who we looked at last week, uh, tells Luther, I don't think you should go. I think they're going to burn you. And uh, Luther feels, no, nah, I, I got to go to defend the, the gospel. And then, but he, then he says to, to Staupitz, he says, look, if they burn me, the shame is God's. Like, I've always found that absolutely overwhelming. The shame is God's. This is not my cause. It's God's cause. He has to stand for his cause. I just came across a little statement recently by Benjamin Franklin. 
Uh, now, he's not the normal person you go to for Christian wisdom, but it's a great little statement to the effect that if a church needs the state to support it, it's not a good church. If the church can't make it on its own with God's help, you know, what does it need the state for? That raises all kinds of questions about, this is kind of naughty, about Islam, right? Using the state. And it reminds us that at the heart of the gospel is the power of God, not the power of the state. So if, if they burn me in the stake, the shame is God's. On the way there, he said, oh, I was, all, I, said, I, I was thinking also about my mom and dad, and they burn me. Oh, what they, will they say? And so he gets to Augsburg, and um, three-day debate. And um, during the debate, Luther starts to realize this guy is a representative of the Pope. And this guy doesn't understand the gospel. And Luther starts to realize the papacy could be wrong. He's, he's not really thought that before. You know, the 95 Theses, he's a bit critical of the papacy, but he hasn't come to the realize, he hasn't got to the point, the Pope is not the vicar of Christ. He's now thinking, I don't think the Pope's the vicar of Christ. And so in the, in the winter of 1518, over into 1519, he studies the history of the papacy and becomes convinced there's real problems here. That the Pope is not the vicar that is representative of Christ. The following year, that didn't shut him up. He's still writing books. So the following year, they have the Leipzig Disputation. And this is a modern uh, depiction of the Leipzig Disputation. Here's Luther. Remember, Luther would have looked like a monk. Um, he would later change uh, his clothing, etc. He's got the coronal tonsure. That is the, the tonsure that indicates he's a monk, where you shave your hair on the top, and it represents the crown of thorns. Right? Uh, the, the earliest monks, not the earliest monks, one of the major groups of monks in, in Europe, the Benedictines, had started this. Uh, the other major group of monks in the, in the early years, in the 5 600s, were the Celtic monks, and they would, they would shave the hair to indicate that they were committed to a monastic lifestyle. They'd take a line here and shave everything in front and grow it long at the back. But that hairstyle didn't, didn't, didn't catch on, and the coronal tonsure was the one. So Luther, Luther is there looking like a monk here. Uh, notice there are nobility, dignitaries, there would have been churchmen. And this man, Johann Eck, is a churchman, but he's also a theologian. He is the big man in, in, German, in Europe. He's one of the great theologians. Nobody's heard of him today. And I'll be honest, I've never read anything by him. I mean, I've read about him. I've read quotes from him, but I've never read any of his books. In fact, I'm not even sure you can get one of his books in print today which tells you something about the fleeting nature of fame. And uh, the debate starts in July, and uh, X says at one point in the early on debate, he says to Luther, uh, on what basis do you teach what you teach? Well, Luther says, it's not on the basis of the papacy. The Pope can be wrong. 
I teach on the basis of church councils and Holy Scripture. And as the debate goes on, and the issue of the indulgences come up, and Luther says a few things that remind Eck of Jan Hus. Because Hus, or Hus, had attacked indulgences. And he says to Luther, okay, what you just said, didn't Hus say that? You sound like Jan Hus. And Luther said, Luther in an unguarded moment, but a providential moment says, yeah, yeah, it sounded like Hus. And I think Hus was right. Eck suddenly was gleeful. He's won the debate because he's caught Luther in a contradiction. He said, didn't you say at the beginning, you believe because of scripture and church councils? Luther said, yeah. A church council condemned Hus as a heretic. And you're telling me now you believe Hus was right? Everything he taught was wrong. And suddenly Luther realizes, I have one ground, scripture. Luther, this is very important to see I, when, um, it's very easy when you study uh, uh, Christian theology to fail to remember how the development of Christian theology and the arguments of Christian theology all have historical roots. And if you don't think about the roots and the causes, you can't understand the things that are going on in the larger context. So the horrors of this weekend with Hamas and the Israel, <laughs> this didn't come out of nowhere. It's got a long history that goes back to 48, uh, the establishment of Israel, and maybe even earlier. And to understand that, the, the whole thing, you have to understand something of that history. In fact, last night I watched, there's a movie called Seven Days in Entebbe with Rosamund Pike. It's really good. It was 1976 when they hijacked that plane, uh, Air France plane, and ended up in Entebbe. Some of us remember that. Uh, three, day, three years after the Yom Kippur War. And uh, uh, these things have a long history. And likewise here, it, it, Luther's understanding of Solar Scriptura is rooted in his debate with Eck and his realization when Eck pressed him on Hus was condemned by a church council, Luther suddenly realized the Pope can err and the church can err, but Holy Scripture cannot. There is one safe ground, the Word of God. And Luther, do, Luther doesn't start there in 1517. But he's there by 1519. Eck comes out of the debate. If, you, if they'd had a, you know, a CBC or a CNN or Fox News reporters there, they would have interviewed Eck and said, oh, so what happened in the debate? Oh, I creamed the guy. Caught him in a, a flat-out contradiction. He's no theologian. He, he can't th keep things straight in his head. If you'd asked Luther after the debate, he says, yeah, he might have seemed to win the debate, but I now realize... There is only one safe place in terms of church teaching and church doctrine. It must be Holy Scripture alone. So, this is very important, Luther's understanding of the Word of God. So, these are three statements Luther makes at some point. Uh, this is an interesting picture. It's after the Luther, time of Luther. It's, uh, this is the Roman Catholic Church. 
uh, digging up ground. You notice it's really not that fruitful. This is the reformers planting nice vines. You'll notice, by the way, also, this is interesting too, they're all wearing black. Uh, before the Reformation, um, church leaders would wear a variety of colors. And suddenly at the time of the Reformation, the church leaders, those Protestants or Reformers, would only wear black. And I'm not, I've never figured that out, because I love color. And uh, if you think of some of the old Amish, right? They only wear black. Um, it's curious. I won't, I, won't, I won't develop this, but it's, it's interesting. The other interesting thing, too, as you, as you go on, and let me go back. Notice Ek does not have a beard. Carnaval does not have a beard. Now, Luther doesn't have a beard either. But pretty well moving forward, one of the marks that you're a reformer is you've got a beard. <laughs> really. If you look at the pictures of all the reformers, they've all got beards. All of them. And uh, when Thomas Cramner, who we'll look at with the English Reformation, when he gets converted, he grows a beard. It's, it's interesting. All right. Um, so, three statements by Luther. The word is the power of God that acts upon man to transform into a decreature. Where the word is not preached, thus not heard, there can be no salvation. So, if you went to your typical Roman Catholic church in the Middle Ages... And this will be important when we get to Calvin. So on Saturday night, I remember doing this as a young child. On Saturday night, you go to confession. And you, you, you confess your sins to the priest, and he gives you penance. So, you know, when you're little, you know, I, I said a lie to my mom. So you get 20 Hail Marys. Hail Mary, full of grace, blessed art thou among women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Uh, very interesting, by the way, that little phrase, at the hour of our death, was added to that prayer after the bubonic plague in the 1340s. The prayer to Mary was in an earlier form, and then that got added. In other words, okay, I've, I've lied to my mom, and so I have to say 20 Hail Marys, or tw uh, 13 Paternosters, right? Our Father art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, etc., now, when do you say that? Well, you say that on Sunday morning when you go to church. There's virtually, they'll, they'll read scripture, but there's no preaching normally. Uh, you'll have the uh, reading of the scripture and then the preparation of the elements, which is behind a screen. So if this was a Roman, typical Roman church, Roman Catholic church of the medieval period, the laity are out there, you're all out there, and then there's a screen, and the priest is here, and the, the altar is here. So most of the time, he's got his back to you, so you can't hear what he's saying. Moreover, he's speaking in Latin, which you probably don't understand either. And also, you've got your penance to do. So you do that while you're in the pew. Right? You're saying, let's say, we're, this is a Roman Catholic Church of Middle Ages. We're all saying our penance. So there's a buzz, right? You don't, don't say it loud, you just say it under your breath. So there's a noise. And uh, at a certain point, you'll hear a bell tinkle. And they tinkle the bell because at that point, shut up and listen because you're just about to receive the bread and you'll come forward and get the bread. 
And uh, that's, that's a typical medieval worship service. And you got all these people saying their penance under their breath. And the priest, his, he is a mediatorial figure between laity and God. And he is actually re-sacrificing Christ. The Mass is a re-sacrifice of our Lord on the altar. It's actually an altar. So all of this is important when we get to Calvin. Okay? So Luther is arguing here, and Cal the Reformers always, at the heart of worship, there must be the preaching of the Word. Yes, the Lord's Supper is important. And in fact, uh, I value the Lord's Supper so highly, I think we should have the Lord's Supper every week, personally. Uh, I'm not going to go to the wall for that. Uh, Calvin believed that. Uh, Calvin only had it four times a year in his church. The elders stood against him on it. Uh, Spurgeon believed it. They had it once a month. But I think, I think the Lord's Supper is the way we respond to the gospel, the preaching. And uh, you don't have to agree with me. Um, uh, but I, I, I think the Lord's Supper is a very, very important means of grace for the Christian. That is, it's a way of strengthening us. It's a way of recommitting ourselves to Christ, etc. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about this when we get to Thomas Cramner and the Book of Common Prayer. Um, <clears throat> but absolutely central is preaching. So when the Reformers had the opportunity to, to retool the architecture of the church, they put these things, pulpits, in the center. And the altar or the table would go down below it. What it does, it, the architecture highlights that what happens here is absolutely central. If the word is not preached, there can be no salvation. Or again, the word, I say, and only the word, is the vehicle of God's grace. So for Luther, now Luther doesn't, of course Luther believes in the Lord's table. And Luther believes that prayer is important, etc. But the, the preaching of the word, if there is no preaching of the word, God's voice is not being heard. In fact, it's not a church if there's no preaching. For Luther, Luther defines a church, it, it, there's the preaching of the word and the proper administration of the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. As the word, so is the birth. As is the birth, so are the people. No wonder the European Catholic Church is in a mess in the time of the Reformation. There's no preaching of the word of God. Nobody has any idea what God requires of the people. No wonder superstition is rampant. There is no preaching of the word of God. So this is, this is the preaching. So Luther really... Uh, uh, sets the Reformation on this trajectory that is, it is shaped by the Word of God. And one of our characteristics as being Baptists is we have, we have been a Word-centered people, a Bible-centered people, a people of the book. Finally, the, Rom the Roman Catholic authorities are just... Uh, ex completely exasperated. Okay, Luther, you've got to come to the Diet of Worms. And you're going to meet and explain yourself to this man, Charles V, who is a Spaniard, a king of Spain. He is the Holy Roman Emperor. 
Now, what Luther, if Luther was fearful at the Augsburg Diet that they might burn him, he did not know that the Pope had personally told Charles, if Luther will not repudiate everything he has written, burn him. Okay? So, Luther turns up. The Diet is a parliament. It's been meeting for about four months. It started meeting in January that year. Uh, there are noblemen there. This guy looks like the Elector of Saxony. There are churchmen. Look at these, these, these guys are churchmen. This guy's a cardinal. Um, and Luther comes in. Four o'clock in the morning, he gets up. He's there at five. He's had a haircut. And he comes in. He's by himself with one or two friends. So he doesn't, this, this is what I, this to me is so important. He doesn't come with military strength. He doesn't come with the power and might of, an, of a, 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 a military institution or anything like that. Just him and God. And um, it would have been overawing all of these nobility, all the German nobility were there conducting various issues of business, etc. And he comes to the front, he's asked to come to the front, and there's a table there with books on it. There's about 30 books, they're Luther's books. And uh, Charles tells him, and they would have spoken in Latin. Uh, Luther doesn't speak Spanish, uh, Charles doesn't speak German, so they were spoken in Latin. Uh, are these books yours? Yeah, looks like it. <laughs> you know, he knows his own books. Uh, will you repudiate everything in them? Uh, this is April the 16th. It's, it's, a, it's a very unusual Luther. Luther Luther's almost timid. He, he says, can you give me 24 hours to think about it? Yeah, sure. Off you go. And uh, I, I can, I mean, given my own proclivities in terms of my own personality, I can well imagine that was a completely fearsome context. And he must have known, he might not have known the secret advice the papacy had given to Charles to burn him, but it, I mean, it, it couldn't have been far from his mind. And I, I don't think we ought to, to kind of, oh, I mean, Luther, get it together. I mean, we can well understand how human that is. Following day, he's back there again, 24 hours, four o'clock in the morning, up, five o'clock uh, to do business, so to speak. And here are the books. Will you deny them? Well, Luther said, uh, they fall into three. It's a completely different Luther. They fall into three categories. First of all, there are those category of these books that are, they're spiritual books. I, I don't say anything about anybody in that. They're not controversial. The freedom of a Christian. Remember, we looked at that last week. And I don't know why you'd want me to deny that. It's just a nice little book of spirituality. And then there are the books, about 10 of them, in which I attacked the Pope. And he deserves to be attacked. He's wrong. He's been wrong for hundreds of years, and he's misled the people of God. And then there are these other books here in which I attack those who defend the Pope, uh, like Johann Eck and Cardinal de Vio, and I'm not repudiating any of them either because those men were wrong to defend the Pope. And uh, he gives his answer in German, uh, initially, which is interesting because he switches to German and then Charles doesn't understand German. Give it to me in Latin. So he gives it to him in Latin and he adds something at the end. 
And now this is in German. I don't expect you to be able to see it all the way back there. It's not, it's, it, the, 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 the distances between the words are not easily seen. But here we have a translation. Since your most serene majesty and your lordships, the nobility, require of me a simple, clear, direct answer, I'll give one. And it is this, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures and by clear reason, I do not trust in the pope or councils alone. Since it is well known they've often erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not retract anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. Here I stand, I cannot do otherwise, God help me. Amen. I mean, it's really an incredible statement. But the context also is incredible. It's like Jeremiah before the kings of Israel. Jeremiah has got no political power at all. Preaching the word of God. Or it's like Elizabeth Bunyan. I don't know if you know the story of Elizabeth Bunyan when her husband, John Bunyan, was put in prison. And she went to plead for him. And one of the three judges said... Your husband's just a wretch. He does the work of the devil. And Elizabeth Bunyan, who was um, uneducated, probably illiterate, came from a poor background, stood up to these three men who were nobility, actually gentry, and said, you're wrong. My husband does the work of God, and when the Lord Jesus returns, you'll find that out. I mean, you have the history of these, these people down through the years who have stood against uh, uh, the powers of this world. Or like the Chinese uh, brother, Ni Tusheng, uh, you know him as Watchman Ni, who refused to bow to communist China, was imprisoned. And his last words were written on a small sheet of paper that he had smuggled out of the prison. That I, I believe in the risen Lord Jesus Christ, and I am prepared to die for him. Which he did. He died there in prison. I mean, these, the, the, the gospel is displayed not through military might. We don't need the powers of this world. This, to me, is very, very, very important. There's a difference between the gospel and all of the whole Islam and everything. It's a very, very important difference. We do not depend upon the sword. We depend upon the Spirit of God. And uh, Luther is a classic example here. Um, now, <clears throat> let me go back here one sec before we get to this. At that point, Charles, it's not clear why he didn't burn him. Because he had direct, direct orders from the Pope to burn him if Luther didn't re repudiate. And he simply waves him away, basically says to him in uh, Latin, you can go. The Spanish guards, who only spoke Spanish, everybody else is German, right? So they only spoke Spanish. They begin to yell in Spanish, take him out and burn him. But nobody else can understand what they're yelling at, <laughs> right? It's a really dangerous moment. They're yelling, to the fire, to the fire. But the Spanish words are nothing like the German, and the Germans have got no idea what these Spaniards are yelling about, but they're obviously excited about something. No idea what it is. And it's a really dangerous moment. Because if the German princes had understood what the Spaniards were yelling, they would assume the Spanish guards were basically reiterating the will of the emperor. 
And they would have taken Luther out and burned him. But Luther walks through that crowd, gets into a cart. He'd come in a cart with horses and starts on his way back to Wittenberg. It's probably the most dangerous moment of his career. Now, by this point, Luther is being excommunicated by the Pope, um, formally excommunicated. So anybody who meets him on that road could kill him. And so his elector, the ruler of Saxony, is afraid for him. And so he kidnaps him and puts him in hiding for a year. And that's where he puts him, the Vatborg. And this is Luther. Luther turns up. Um, he grows a big beard. So he doesn't normally have a beard, but he grows a beard. And he's told, people in the castle are told, this is Junker Georg, Sir George. The word Junker means sir in German. Junker Georg. And uh, he's, a, he's a nobleman, and he's going to stay for a few months at the castle. Nobody knows it's Martin Luther. And for the first few weeks, Luther's going out on hunting, you know, hunting trips. What the nobility like to do, they go hunting foxes, uh, which is uh, horrifying to me personally. Uh, the idea of hunting an animal for sport. But anyway, that's off to the side. Um, uh, Luther goes on a couple of these hunting trips, and then he starts to think, oh, sorry, oh, the poor fox. He actually feel, I, I feel like I'm the fox, and the papacy's trying to find me. So he stops going out on the hunting trips, and what am I going to do with myself? Well, I'll translate the Bible. And so he starts to translate the New Testament. And in doing so, he will establish... Modern German. Uh, you, you, all kinds of German dialects. Um, I have a friend who's married to a Bavarian, and uh, the friend is from Berlin, and uh, her parents are very upset because they can't understand a word he says. You know, he's got such a thick dialect. You know, what'd you marry this guy for? He's just like a you know, country hillbilly. Um, my daughter lives in Austria. She learned German, high German, Luther's German, but uh, it's uh, not high German in Austria. It's got a very different accent and very different words, too. So, in, you know, if I met you in, in Berlin and I said good day to you, uh, guten Tag, uh, guten Morgen, in, in uh, Austria, they, it's Grüß Gott, God greets you, which is, I remember being in Vienna, where our daughter lives, and going into stores, and people say to me, Grutzkopf. And I think, wow, that's, that's interesting. <laughs> and uh, so my daughter had a dickens of a time for about three or four years trying to be understood, but especially trying to understand, well, what are these people saying? I know they're speaking German, but I can't get hold of it. Um, England's this way, right? I mean, I grew up in Birmingham and then moved to Coventry. And then we came to Canada when I was 12, and my son and I were back in Birmingham, and I took him to a football match. I, I'm a big Aston Villa fan. And um, <clears throat> on the way back, we caught a bus. We were staying at a hotel downtown Birmingham. And we get on the bus, and my son was mortified by what took place. So I, I, I didn't have any change, and I wanted to get a bill broken. And I hadn't got a clue what the bus driver said to me. Okay, I grew up in Birmingham. He's, he's brummy. That's the accent. I hadn't got a clue. Could you repeat that? Said it again. I still didn't have a clue. It happened three or four times by the time I could tell my son's getting really antsy because there's about five, six, seven people behind him. He's a teenager, his stupid dad, showing him up, you know. Finally, the guy just waves me on the bus. I, I, to this day, I have no idea what he actually said to me. 
I think he was saying, just get on the bus. I, I can't break the, the bill. I, I think that's what he's saying. I don't know. I mean, I generally can figure out accents in England where they're from, but some of them, like the Geordie, uh, my wife's a Glaswegian. Some of the Glaswegians, I mean, it's almost, like, are they speaking English? <laughs> they are. I, please don't tell my wife I said that. <laughs> anyway, so Luther's at the Vartborg, and he translates the Bible, and that Bible becomes the standard of modern German. It's very important. Eventually, he comes back in a year or so, less, it's a bit less than a year, and um, <clears throat> uh, here he is at the Vartborg. This is the, this is the actual room. I've not been to the room in the Vartborg, but that's the room he, he kind of studied in. And up in one of the corners, there is a huge uh, ink blot. Because Luther was studying one day and he said, I'm positive the devil was up there. So he grabs his ink pot and whips it at him. He says, that's the way to deal with the devil. You've got to be firm with him. And the other way you've got to deal with the devil, you have to make fun of him. Luther's got these number of fascinating things on how to deal with the devil. And uh, I got, who, know, who knows? I mean, was the devil up in the corner? I mean, you might be thinking, okay, was the devil actually attacking Luther? It's possible. My Luther is a pretty important figure. You know, I, it's unlikely the devil, the devil, Lucifer, attacks any of us, right? We're, we're all small fry, and uh, he'll send his minions to attack us. But uh, Luther, yeah, Luther's important. So maybe, maybe the devil was up in the corner of the, the Vartborg. Here he is translating the Bible. Um, now, you, by the way, you notice he cuts off his beard. Although this picture does have his beard. That's Luther there. This is, this is actually the, the, the room today. So Luther gets back to, 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 to Wittenberg. They begin to push through the Reformation. Um, when he gets back, the Lord's Supper is being celebrated in German. And people are receiving the bread and the wine. Nobody received the wine in the Middle Ages. I, I should have d done this study years ago. I, think, I had no idea when they stopped giving the laity, the people, the wine. Uh, and I have no idea why they, 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 they argued you didn't need the wine. Because it would strike you, right? Uh, in the New Testament, you have the bread and the wine. Uh, but there is this argument by the late Middle Ages. You, the laity don't need the wine. All they need the bread is the bread. And the wine is contained in the bread. Anyway. Uh, this would have been the first time these people had heard the Lord's Table in German. And Luther, Luther brings the altar from the wall... Every church in, in Europe is built on an east-west axis, right? So when you're praying, you're facing Jerusalem. All the cement, all the old cemeteries, this is, is a, I'm on a rabbit trail here. All the old cemeteries in Europe are built on an east-west axis. So you're buried facing Jerusalem. When you rise up out of your grave at the second coming, you'll be facing Jerusalem where the Lord is. And if you've got a wife, your wife is always buried on the side She's on when you married her, right? Which is the left, correct? The woman's always on the right. She's on the right. I have problems with my right and left. Sometimes my wife will say to me, Michael, turn right. And I have to go like this in the car. So, excuse me. So she's, she's on your right. So you're, you're, you're buried. That's the way you're buried. You're, both of you are facing Jerusalem and you'll rise together. So you'll be on your right. It's curious. Um, so Luther, Luther has brought the altar. It's now, it's not an altar. It's the table of the Lord. 
and uh, God's people gather around the table. I mean, th- these, these changes would have been really radical. They, we don't think anything of them, but they would have been quite radical in that day. And then the other thing that Luther um, discovers in the 1520s is marriage. He's a monk. He's living in the monastery at Wittenberg. The monks are still there. And um, Katharina von Bora, who's about 10 years younger than Luther, no, she's about 17 years younger than Luther. Her parents took her to a monastery when she was 10 or 12. She's nobility. Notice the little Vaughn. Um, I used to think that was true also of Van in Dutch. I remember being in a Dutch Reformed church, and I, I, I was corrected afterwards. Um, I said, now, if any of you, and a lot of them would, have Van in your name, it means you descend from nobility. And one of my good friends, a man named John Van Leeuwen, came to me afterwards. He said, you've made everybody in the church who's got Van in their name thrilled to bits, but you're actually wrong. <laughs> So the van is not like Vaughn, but in Vaughn in German means you're descended from nobility. And she was nobility. Um, her parents, who knows why, they stuck her in a monastery. Maybe they didn't want to have more kids. Maybe they didn't want to split the inheritance. Maybe they didn't want girls. And she was stuck in a nunnery when she was 12. In her early teen, late teens, she's reading Luther. Who knows how she got Luther's books in the monastery, in the nunnery, and she gets converted. And about... Twelve other nuns are converted. We've got to get out of here, they decide. How are we going to get out? Um, well, there was a guy who used to deliver food and uh, pickle barrels. <coughs> he would bring these huge pickle barrels like this. The, the, the nuns must have eaten a lot of pickles <laughs> because he smuggles 12 of them out in pickle barrels in 1524. Uh, where do you want to go, Katarina? Well, why did you take us to Wittenberg where, you know, Martin and Dr. Luther is? So she, 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 the, the, he, she doesn't know him, but she knows of him. So they all get brought to Wittenberg, smuggled out in the pickle barrels. And suddenly Luther's got these 12 women. Uh, what, what can you do with them? Well, so what's that? And they smell like pickles. And they smell like pickles, <laughs> 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 uh, Well, Luther, Luther decides, got to find them husbands. So for the next year or two, he's a matchmaker. You know, he's writing to his friends. He said, I know you don't have a wife. Would you like to? <laughs> We've got a bevy of women here, uh, you know. <laughs> and he has two marriages lined up for Katerina, and neither of them work because she's got her eyes on Martin. And finally, in 1525, they get married. And somebody, uh, one of their friends afterwards, writes to Luther and says, okay, like you're, you're in your late 40s. She's in her early 20s. Like, <laughs> well, why, why did she get married? Well, Luther said, you know, we, you know, my father, he's always wanted kids. Well, that's okay. That's, that's good. And then he said, I thought it was a great way to spite the Pope. <laughs> <laughs> so you can just imagine, you know, Katerina. It's just a great story. Katerina saying, you know, Mark, why would you like to marry me? Well, I think it'd be a great way to spite the Pope, wouldn't it? We could, we could both do that together. Ex-nun, ex, ex-monk. You know, really stick it to them. <laughs> but they have a fabulous marriage. <coughs> and uh, here is, they, they are. Luther, Luther was a very gifted musician. He composed some hymns. Eine Festeburg, right? Uh, a mighty fortress is our God. A bulwark, never failing. That's a tremendous, tremendous hymn. And here's Katharina. Um, 
And what they, I, I don't have the picture here, but the, the, the monastery, they basically take the whole monastery over. It's a huge, huge building. Uh, they need it because Wittenberg in the 15, late 1520s, 1530s, is besieged with all kinds of students coming from all over Europe, coming to live and study with Martin. And we got all kinds, of, we got a, a whole series of books called Table Talk, and these students would take down on paper everything Martin said at dinner time. And we've got all kinds of, we've got his views on all kinds of interesting things. Um, and he's remarkable. Now there's one area, and I'm, I need to be careful of my time. This is, this is very important. For a thousand years, if you wanted to be zealous for Christ, you were celibate. You became a monk or a nun. And Luther realized it had bequeathed all kinds of problems to the Roman church, from the, the, the typical parish priest all the way up to the cardinals, even the papacy. You've got men who are celibate, but they're not chaste. They're having sexual liaisons with women. And Luther thought, just let them marry, which I think is sound advice. Um, at the same time as all this, there is reformation going on in Switzerland with this man, Huldreich Zwingli, born in 1484. In the, he was a parish priest in Zurich. Uh, this is Marburg, not Zurich. Ah, here's Zurich. This is the church he was in, uh, the, the Grossminster. Uh, I've been there. It's a beautiful, beautiful church. It's right near the, uh, the, uh, the Rhine. Uh, no, it's not the Rhine. It must be another river that's right here. And um, <clears throat> he was a parish priest, and he's got major questions about the papacy. Number one, a lot of Swiss young men will leave 18, 19 years old and go and join the Swiss Guard to fight for the Pope up and down Italy. Many of them never came back, devastating to family life. Some came back with what we now know as uh, post-traumatic stress syndrome, right? The, the whole experience of war has deeply psychologically scarred them. Others come back without a limb, without both two, without legs or eyes, whatever. And it's devastating to, 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 to Swiss society. And he's thinking, what on earth is the Pope doing fighting wars and why is he consuming our young men like this? And he's also wrestling with various legalisms. And around 1518, 1519, it's an Easter, uh, good, it's a Good Friday. And in the Roman church growing up in the Middle Ages, growing up recently, uh, you, don't eat, you don't eat meat on Friday, you only eat fish. Because in the Middle Ages, meat was the more expensive item. It's a luxury item. Fish was not. Uh, interesting today, fish is very expensive. You know, buying salmon or uh, is it halibut? Halibut's more expensive than haddock, right? Yeah, halibut. Yeah, they're, they're, fish can be fairly expensive, but whatever. Um, <clears throat> so you don't eat meat on Friday, and a number of uh, um, Zwingli's with about four or five of his friends who are priests, uh, and one of them says, "Man, I'm hungry." Uh, well, Zwingli said, "What, what, what do you got in the, in, in the larder?" Uh, just some sausages. Let's fry them up and have them. And that's the beginning of the Reformation. <laughs> In Zurich, they broke church law. You don't eat meat on Friday. 
Now, we're told that Zwingli didn't eat the sausages. The other guys ate the sausages. But he was in full agreement with eating sausages. Where in the New Testament, he said, does it say we can't eat sausages on Friday? Right? Well, nowhere. Now, we don't have to abide by it. We, we are under obligation to what God has laid down in his word, not to men's traditions. And so by the early 1520s, he's preaching justification by faith alone. And then he finds out about Martin Luther. Never heard of the guy before. And he actually at one point says, if people didn't know my story, they would have thought I'd read Luther. I didn't read Luther. Never found out about him until God had converted me. So <clears throat> a number of German princes, why don't we get Luther and Zwingli together? Great idea. And it's a man named Philip of Hesse, and this is Marburg. Uh, anybody been to Marburg? Yeah? It's a very steep climb up to the castle, if you remember. Uh, in fact, this is the old town, and it's on a height of about 600 feet. You have to take an, an elevator up to this town. Remember doing that? I mean, it's, it's much larger than this now because it's, it's down around on the plain. But it's a walled city up on a hill, and then walking up here, this is really steep. And I remember being, as we were going up and looking at these buildings, Luther saw these. I mean, I, I'm, I'm a big, big, well, you can tell, history guy. So, I mean, I, I just, yeah. Luther could have touched these walls. <laughs> anyway, um, so they get up to Marburg, um, and... Uh, there's Luther. We've seen Luther already. This is Philip Melanchthon, his co-worker, key co-worker. Um, his real name is Philip Schwarzerd, uh, Black Earth. But he didn't like his German name, so he changed it to Greek. So Greek, Greek Melan is black in Greek. Uh, uh, Thon is, is, is uh, Earth, uh, Philip Melanchthon. These, this is Zwingli. And this is Zwingli's friend, Johann Oikolampadius, whose real name in Swiss German was Hausgen, house light. He didn't like his name either, so he changed it to oikos, which is house, lampadius, light in Greek, so house light. And he's in Basel. Um, and so Zwingli, they're both in uh, uh, German-speaking Switzerland. This is the room they met in, up in the castle. They didn't meet, uh, Philip Hess knew that Luther could be a bit of a firebrand, and they knew that Luther disagreed with Zwingli on one key issue, which is, how is the Lord Jesus Christ present at the Lord's Supper? Now, Luther believed, he didn't believe in transubstantiation, that's the Roman doctrine of the medieval period, that is, when the prayer, pre, prayer says the priest of consecration, it's no longer bread. It looks like bread, smells like bread, tastes like bread, feels like bread, it's now the very body of Christ. So medieval theologians have all kinds of debates. Okay, so when you're giving the bread to somebody and a little crumb drops on the floor and a mouse comes out and eats the crumb, <laughs> what happens to the mouse? That's a, I can actually show you. That is a theological debate. What happens to the poor mouse when it eats <laughs> consecrated bread? So Luther, none of the reformers believe that. But what Luther does believe is that when the minister consecrates the elements, which we do here. We pray over them. And we don't technically call it consecration, but there is prayer. When that happens, 
The bread is still bread, but it now contains the body of Christ. Just like Luther said, if you take an iron poker and stick it in a very hot fire, leave it there long enough, it'll glow red. Likewise, the bread now contains the very body of Jesus. So that John 6, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you don't have my life in you. Zwingli didn't believe that. <clears throat> Zwingli thought the bread is a symbol of what Christ did for us. So Philip of Hesse, who's got the gathering together, he's the owner of the castle. He knows these two are going to clash. So he has on the first day of the discussion, Johann Leuchter Lampadius meets um, Luther and Philip Melanchthon meets. And Philip is a really mild man. He meets uh, Zwingli. Finally, on the second day, Zwingli and Luther meet. And it's like, um, I'm not sure I buy the whole thing of, you know, an alpha personality, but it's two guys like that. I mean, these guys are real strong leaders. And so the discussion begins. They want to draw up a, a series of articles. They've got 15 articles. They agree on 14 of them. Totally agree. The 15th is how is Jesus present at the table? That is a very big issue in the Reformation period. So let's say this was a Roman Catholic city and I'm a Protestant or an evangelical and I get caught. And you ask, you, the question you'll ask me is not what, not, not what do I think of the Pope? Um, there were all kinds of people in the Middle Ages thought the Pope was an antichrist and they didn't get hurt. Uh, so for instance, there's a group of Franciscan monks in Southern Italy around the 1300. They build a brand new town and over the entrance of the town, these are Franciscan monks. They put in Latin, the Pope is the Antichrist. That's the, so when you enter the town, oh, that's what he is, eh? Um, nobody ever touched them. So you, you, you can say all kinds of things you want about the Pope. The question that will kill you is, what happens when you receive the bread and the wine? Or the bread. And if you say... I do not receive a transubstantiated body of Christ. That alone would execute you. So this is a big issue. It, when we look back today, I mean, we're thinking, like, why would they get so up in arms about this? And as the debate goes on between Luther and Zwingli, Luther says, look, look, who was the first into the battle against the papacy? It wasn't you, it was me. I was the first in the field. Well, that's kind of not a big argument. <laughs> like, don't, can't you prove it from Scripture if you've got your view? And uh, Luther says, okay, when Jesus says, this is my body, what does that is mean? Zwingli says, well, this represents my body. No, it doesn't say this represents my body. He says, this is my body. God is above your stupid mathematics. I mean, it got so heated at one point, Luther gets a piece of chalk and he draws a line between him and, and Zwingli. And he says, on this side of the line is the spirit. My spirit doesn't recognize your spirit. I mean, it's funny, but it's not funny. In one sense, yeah, I mean, if you think like, like, give me a break, like, really? These guys agree on virtually everything and they can't agree to disagree. Um, but this is a critical issue. Uh, Zwingli argued, Jesus' body can't be in the bread because his body 
if it's a real human body, it's at the right hand of the Father. It's ascended to heaven. And it, it's not omnipresent. The Son of God is omnipresent, but that's his deity. In his humanity, for his humanity to be real, it can't be omnipresent. And he's right. On the other hand, <clears throat> Luther's got a point. At the table, is Christ present? And I need to be careful here. And my argument is yes. He's there by the Spirit. We feast with our Lord. I mean, I, I know some evangelicals have almost implied, you know, Jesus is absent at the table. Like, no, no, where two or three are gathered together, there I am. How is he among us? He's among us by the Spirit. That's John Calvin. John Calvin will eventually write a book in which he tries to do a middle road between Luther and Calvin. Sorry, uh, not Luther, no. Luther and Zwingli. And we'll talk a little bit about that. And I think Calvin's right. The reason why the table is so precious is we, we feast with our Lord in anticipation of the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so, who was right? I think Zwingli had a point and Luther had a point. But even so, surely they could agree to disagree. And you might be here tonight and think, no, no, Michael, you're, you're dead wrong on that. It's just simply a symbol. Fine. Well, you're not going to excommunicate me. I'm not going to excommunicate you. We're not going to form two new Baptist churches over this issue. We agree to disagree. It is really sad. And Luther leaves, and there's no agreement on that final article. And that, that convinces Roman Catholic powers in Switzerland, if we attack Zurich, the German princes who are allied with Luther will not help. And two years later, the Roman Catholic powers in Switzerland attack Zurich. Zwingli goes out as a chaplain and is killed on the battlefield. And no help comes from the Lutheran uh, churches. And it splits, it splits the Reformation into two wings, the Lutheran wing and the Reformed wing. And the Reformed wing eventually, we, we call it Calvinist, but it splits the Reformation. These men who agreed on so much, and this is, this is, not, this is not even a secondary, it's definitely not a primary issue, it's definitely not a secondary issue, it's a tertiary issue. And it, again, it's so often in the history of the church, we disagree on tertiary issues. We've just gone through some of that here in southern Ontario. You know? Should we wear masks? Should we obey government mandates about social distancing? Well, you may have convictions, fine. But don't impose your, your, your perspectives on other brethren. Allow brethren to come to their own convictions according to their own conscience. These are not issues to split over. And yet we've seen... I'm, my, the, the church that my wife and I were in for about 15 years, Trinity Baptist Church, split right down the middle on these issues. And I'm thinking, man, give me a break. 20 years from now, people will look back and say, that was so utterly stupid. Right? It's as stupid as Anglicans in the late 1800s splitting over, can we put candles on the table of the Lord? Some Anglicans said, no, absolutely no way. That's Roman Catholic. No candles on the table of the Lord. And there were division over it. Like you're thinking like, really? And you, you start to realize that at times like this, there's somebody else who's urging splits. The evil one. 
And it's, this is a very, very sad part of Luther's the latter career. Oh, there we go. Okay, any time, we've got time for questions. I went a lot longer tonight, forgive me. Um, we have 10 minutes. Technically, we're 7.30 to 9, but if you've got questions, uh, if not, I'll say a little bit about next week, and um, we'll close with a word of prayer. Yes? You mentioned the <coughs> biography of Luther earlier, and you said uh, that we see things a little maybe differently now or know things more different. What, what kind of things would you say are a little different from that biography 50 years ago? Yeah, I think we know the social, cultural background a lot better than we would have then. Um, that would be a key issue. Um, that's probably the main thing. Um, I think we also see Luther is different from the other reformers. He's much more of a medieval man um, than, say, Calvin. Calvin's a much more modern person. He would fit easier in our world. Uh, that was not as obvious, I think, in the 1950s as it is now. But I think especially the kind of socio-cultural background, we just know a lot more. Uh, so our, last week we looked at Argula von Grumbach. Uh, if I'd mentioned that name in 1950, who? Nobody had ever heard of her. There were texts and documents. They were sitting in an archive, but nobody, nobody consulted them. Partly because nobody was interested in women's history. So now we're very interested in women's history, and rightly so. I mean, more than half the church is women. And uh, so our, our understanding of Katharina von Bora, you know, we wouldn't have known the, the sort of things that we know about her then that we do now. I mean, she basically ran the household. And Luther's got some beautiful letters to her where he calls her Mistress Katharina, you know, and he'll tell friends, you know, I, I can't do a thing at home unless I get her, 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 her okay for it. And uh, she had pigs, she had a pigsty in the garden. Sometimes he addresses her uh, the mist to, the, to the lady and mistress of the pigsty. Um, as obviously you can tell, there's a fun relationship there in many ways. I mean, a lot of that is not known. Again, because uh, women's history has only been a recent thing, the last probably 40 years. So. Any other questions before we... Yeah. It, it's kind of a thought slash... I wonder all your thoughts on it in terms of the wearing of wearing black. I wonder if that's... The two things that I could think of is kind of one, a differentiation from what was currently happening into kind of a form of protest. I'm curious about your thoughts. Yeah, I think it's a form of protest. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church, the leadership wore red or white, and uh, all the ministers now start to wear black. And uh, it's intriguing uh, in many ways. Um, I think some of it, yeah, we're different from them. It's like in the early church, the early church moves from the scroll to the book, what's called a codex, around the 200s, 300s. And the early church distinguishes itself from Judaism. The Jews continue to use the scroll, the Torah, etc., scrolls. And the church uses a codex, a book form. And I think some of it is we're different from the Jews. So some of it is a way of differentiation. Um, yeah, I mean... To the point that in certain circles, like in some Dutch reform circles, very conservative Dutch reform circles, you've got the ministers who will always wear black, white shirt, black tie, black jacket, etc. Um, 
And it's odd. I think it's odd anyway. I, I love color. And um, what's wrong with wearing colors? But some of it, you're right, it's protest. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church, those guys wore red. And, well, we're not Roman Catholics. So we're not. Again, the beard. I mean, they've all, all the reformers have got beards. First thing I thought of with that is, like, in, I think it's in Levit Leviticus, saying not to, not to shave. Yeah. Uh, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Like, I don't know. Well, I don't, no, I don't, think it's, I don't think it's that. I think it's a way of protesting, a way to dis distinguish. We're, we're not reformers. Yeah. We're not Roman Catholics. But these things have cycles, right? If you look at, you know, the 18, 18, well, the late 19th century beards were in, and then beards go out in the First World War because men in the trenches, right, you get lice, so beards are out, and beards are out until the 60s, right? They come back in, and I remember um, I grew in a mustache in, I was, I'm a child of the late 60s, early 70s, I grew a mustache, to, I'm not... I'm not one of those guys from the 50s, right? They didn't have mustaches or beards. Uh, I had a beard, and sh I've shaved it off obviously years ago. But it was a yeah, it's yeah, it's a way of distinguishing. It's it's curious. Beards are back in, by the way. You know, they've been out for a while. A, m a lot of my students have got beards. You know, beards down here, real big beards. You know, it's sh shaved head and beards. <laughs> Any other questions? Do they ride Harley Davidsons? No, they don't do that. <laughs> Most of the guys you see riding Harley Davidson have got my hair color, right? <laughs> They're all these old guys in their 50s and 60s. Yeah. Okay, next week. Oh, yeah, one more. I was wondering about Martin um, Bootser. Um, I'm familiar with his book, The Care of Souls. I was wondering if, if there's more that he's done that's yet to be... Translator, you know yeah, there's a, he wrote a fair amount, and it's never been translated to English. He's got one on the kingdom, but the care of souls is his gem. It's a gem of, of pastoral ministry. It's, it's fabulous for pastors. And you can see he was a very warm-hearted pastor, very gifted pastor. And that book was not available in English for a long time. But it's, it's, it's been very influential because in Latin, people... People like you know Calvin, Luther, etc. would be able to read in Latin. So next week we want to turn from Luther to Calvin. So I'm going to spend two or three weeks on Calvin, uh, at least two weeks, and then the French Reformation, and uh, then eventually we'll get to to England. Okay, let me close with a word of prayer. Our Father, we pray that we would help us to learn from the past, not simply to hear about these stories and events but that we would learn wisdom. And we thank you for those who've gone before us, for their faithfulness. But we also thank you that we can learn uh, from their mistakes. Help us to walk this week in the gospel, thanking you for the scriptures, for what you have given us in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, a, a full and complete salvation. And may you be with us this night and throughout the week to come, for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen.